0: My wife Colleen and I prioritize eating healthy, but between running our own business and spending time with our daughter Ellie, we don't always have time to go grocery shopping and cook all the delicious plant-based meals we want to eat, which is why I'm so glad that Hungry Root is sponsoring today's podcast episode. Founded in 2015, Hungry Root delivers healthy convenience to your door, making it easy to eat healthy when you're super busy. Meals only take 10 minutes to prepare, and each one includes fresh-cut vegetables, mouth-watering sauces, and there's so much variety. They have 75 different dishes, so we definitely never get bored. Even better, all of their meals are low in sodium and preservatives and sugar-free. The only issue? We're guilty of hitting their almond chickpea cookie dough just a little too hard. Hey, what do you expect? It's delicious. Sound good to you? Use code MBG to get $25 off your first two deliveries for a total savings of $50. Hey everyone, I hope you don't mind the brief interruption, but I wanted to take a minute to share something I'm really excited about right now. In today's world, many people simply view food as sustenance, entertainment, or even worse, as the enemy. But that's not how it should be, and definitely not how it has to be. What people often forget is that food fuels us, nourishes us, and is one of the most powerful, and not to mention affordable, pathways to our greatest well-being. That is why we here at MindBodyGreen, along with some of the world's top functional health experts, have created the first-ever Functional Nutrition Program, a comprehensive training built to help you discover how you can unlock the healing powers of food featuring the techniques of renowned experts like Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Frank Lipman, Dr. Vincent Pedre, Kelly Levesque, and more. By enrolling in this one-of-a-kind opportunity, you'll learn how you can heal your gut, improve your digestion, and fight inflammation, how you can use food to enhance the health of your brain and fight autoimmune disease, how to heal your thyroid, slow the aging process, and pick the perfect supplement to complement your functional nutrition habits. Plus, lifestyle changes you can start making today to prevent disease and promote lung duty essentially you'll learn how to heal the body through the power of food so that you can feel rejuvenated and more alive than you ever thought possible on top of all of this as a student in the program you'll receive total access to over 160 video lessons live office hours with all instructors at various points throughout the program Exclusive self-paced content to deepen your functional nutrition knowledge, including an array of thorough study guides, writing assignments and quizzes, discussion boards to interact with other students and the MindBodyGreen functional nutrition guide certification, the MBG FNG upon completion of the program and so much more. Now, just because we're so excited about this program and so excited for you to start mastering the concept of functional food, we're offering you an exclusive deal. If you sign up today, you can get this comprehensive, first-of-its-kind program for $600 off the original price. So don't wait. To sign up for this exclusive deal today, go to mindbodygreen.com slash unlock. That's mindbodygreen.com slash unlock. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this exciting news, and we hope that you'll join us by making the MindBodyGreen Functional Nutrition Program part of your journey toward optimal well-being. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions... Any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. Hey everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com and I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much, and let's go back to the podcast. When we think of the wellness revolution and all the progress we've made, there are a few brands that come to mind that really paved the way. One of those brands is Sweetgreen. We've got two of the three founders, Nicholas and Jonathan, here today to discuss the early days of Sweetgreen, where the brand is heading, what trends are exciting, and what the future of wellness really is. Nick, Jonathan, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. We You're are great. literally
0: above a Sweet Green recording this. Our office at Mind Buddy Green sits above Sweetgreen Green in Dumbo. Company Cafeteria. Company Cafeteria. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks so much for being here. And you guys have come. So far, and the Sweetgreen brand is synonymous with with wellness and and healthy eating. And you have a lot a lot of fans in this office, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners. But I want to go back to the early days. What was the inspiration and vision for Sweetgreen? How did this all come about at Georgetown back in what year?
1: 2007. Wow. Yeah, for us, it was really you know it started as a very simple problem. We the three of us met in college. And every single day we had this conversation around having nowhere to eat that made us feel good, that fit our values. And it was always the same options that kind of made us feel kind of shitty at the end of eating it. And so we didn't understand why there weren't food options that were accessible but healthy, where you really understood the food and where it came from. And that ultimately was cool. And so we started writing a business plan to try to solve the problem just for ourselves.
0: So this is like senior year of college or junior year? Senior year. Wow. So you're writing a business plan, and then when do you say, like, okay, I think we can do this? So we started
2: writing the business plan September, October of 2006, and it it was almost like a school project to start. It was, what if we could do this? And in the process of writing the business plan, we started peeling back the layers of this industry and realized that it wasn't just a problem in our life, in our community. It was a massive global issue. And as we started writing that business plan and going through the process of raising money, creating the menu, creating the brand, we realized how big the opportunity really was. So we ended up raising money from family and friends uh, later that spring and opening Opening our doors August 1st, 2007.
0: Wow. So like a lot of people that graduate from college in May or June, they're like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I've got my job lined up in September or maybe I don't. Like you guys are going full on. Like we're opening a restaurant.
1: Opening a 560 square foot restaurant. (laughs) Our first one was tiny. Yeah. I think
0: a lot of the,
2: the naivete of not knowing how hard it was, not knowing how hard, you know, everyone talks about how hard the restaurant industry is, but it just didn't look that hard. (laughs) (laughs) You <laughs> <laughs> we 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 said, how, how hard could it be? We we're going to go source fresh food, and we we're going to serve it in this small space. It s- sounded, sounded kind of simple. And I think not knowing how things worked gave us that courage to do it, so, gave us the courage to tackle it. And then also not knowing how it was supposed to be done also gave us the courage to do it differently.
0: So 560 square feet compared to, like, what's your average – Size today for like a new, a new opening. So I know, I know they vary, but. Today, our sweet greens average around 2,000
1: to 3,000 square feet. So it's different per city, but we actually look back at that first restaurant that was 500 square feet, and we're very grateful because I think that size actually created some positive constraints. It forced us to keep it really simple, focus on um, a simpler menu and higher execution. And if the first restaurant had been really big, we probably would have tried to do too many things. So we look back very often at that first restaurant, and we're very grateful for the constraints it placed on
0: us. Mm-hmm. So what happens? You open the doors and it's off the races or easy streets from then on? There? <laughs> <laughs> like, what was it like when you first opened?
1: When we first opened, people loved it. And, you know, we look back and, you know, we had lines out the doors and it was really busy. And then when you look at how many people we were serving, it's a fraction of what we serve right. today. It's a
0: very small, pe- not a lot of people can fit in the door. It's actually a good Not, way to start. Yeah, you can
1: only fit about <laughs> 10 people in the door. So when the line was out the door, we thought we were killing it. But then when you look back, it was, you know, serving like a hundred people a day, 200 people a day. And today in some of our restaurants, we serve thousands of people a day. Wow. But it was, it was very
2: clear that we struck a chord right from the, right from the beginning with our customers. And it started because we were that customer and we've always, you know, been customer obsessed. When we started, it was, it was solving a problem for our own life. Going forward, it was how do we get in our customer's shoes and our different types of customer's shoes and really get to know them and solve their problems. But when we opened that first one, it was very clear that we had, like, filled this niche that people were craving around food, food that was healthy, delicious, affordable, convenient, Mm -hmm. and it it was solving a problem. And today there's a lot of competition for what we do. There's a lot of options, and we have to figure out how to be different and better. But at the time, it
0: was just like,
2: oh, my God. I don't I have nowhere I can get food like
0: this. Right. So in the early days, like what were you guys doing? Were you serving? Were you cleaning? Were you all of the above? All like the, what was em, it em, like everything. sleeping there? <laughs> everything.
1: Well, it was too small for
0: us to sleep there, but
1: in the early <laughs> days we were doing everything from washing dishes to paying the bills to running the restaurant to making Salads and, uh, looking for new real estate. I mean, really was everything.
2: I mean, we lived across the
1: street and that's how we found Uh, the space. Nate and I lived
2: together and Nick lived just like a hundred steps around the corner, which has continued throughout the, throughout our lives. That hasn't changed over 10 years. (laughs) Wow. So we still, we still kind of all live on the same street wherever we, wherever we happen to move. But at the time we lived, you know, about 50 steps away from the space. So it was just, we'd go back and forth from home to work just continuously.
0: So, in those early days, like, when did you say, like, okay, like, like we need to figure this out or this is really hard? Or, you know, I think part of it, like, was there a moment or some things you learned on the job where you were just like, holy cow, we never thought about this. We need to think about this. And and this is what we need to do if we're going to open location number two?
1: A lot of things. You know, for us at the end of the day it was understanding how we could scale this. And even when you know, when John talks about how we struck a chord, we realized that early on, aside from creating a place where it was convenient to get this kind of food, the thing we had done and semi on purpose or accident, who knows looking back, but it was really about creating a brand that was cool, that was celebrating healthy Mm -hmm. food. So when you look back ten years ago, all the most accessible, delicious um food was always the least healthy. So we created something that was accessible and healthy, but was also cool. We were celebrating it with you know, the same kind of marketing and brand that usually processed and unhealthy food was celebrated with. Sure. So it was really using the power of marketing to elevate this kind of food and connect people to it.
0: How did you come up with the name?
1: The name,
2: we when we started, it was going to be called Greens, just very simply. And we didn't realize that we needed to trademark our name. So so as we went down that process, we, we started just, you know, we'd sit there at night and brainstorm and we
0: thought, you know, we love the alliteration of sweet and green. Yep. So what is it, you know, in so many ways, what you, what you guys have done is impressive and and novel. And in so many ways I'm like, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's a focus. It, you do great salads and a lot of people have done that, but there's been no brand that I can think of that is perceived as cool. And it has as many locations and is as commercially successful. And so, what is it? What is it that you guys did so right? Do you think in this journey to to how many? I also want to walk through how many locations do you? So, 2007, one location, 500 square feet. We're 2018. Today we have 86 locations across the country. So like, what do you, what do you guys think you did so right? And I get that there's a product, there's a service, there's ingredients, there's a trend, all that. But like, from a brand perspective, when people think Sweet Green, they think, you know, these guys are cool. There's an experience.
2: Yeah. I think the, the sweet life the, yeah, the festival, well, everything. Yeah. What we got right from the beginning was starting with a mission, really starting with a why and bringing our team around that our team both internally and our customers around that mission of building healthier communities by connecting people to real food. So it was always bigger than just the product. It was about this larger mission and then the values in which we brought that mission to life and a constant focus on creating a great team with great culture and constant innovation. The Sweetgreen of 2007 looks nothing like the Sweetgreen of 2018. And if we kept doing what we were doing then, we wouldn't be here today. The Sweetgreen in 2025 will look nothing like it does today. And I think with the problem with most food brands before, before this, they really didn't innovate a whole lot. They thought it was, it was almost cool to do the same thing forever. Mm -hmm. But if you look at other iconic brands, they continue to innovate and meet the customer where they are from a product standpoint, from a story, from an access and how people enjoy that, enjoy that product or experience. And I think we've had a constant, you know, maniacal focus on innovation and meeting the customer where they are.
1: And so, how has the menu changed? The menu has changed pretty drastically. But what hasn't changed is the problem we set out to solve in Georgetown 10 years ago around connecting people to real food, sourcing food the right way, you know, creating a place that could serve food that isn't processed. Um, and then, what we serve on top of that food ethos changes over the years. Um, from the specific bowls to the different categories on our menu. Um, I think actually 11 years later today, there's only one bowl that is remaining from our existing yeah. menu. Everything I, else is different.
0: But that's one of the things that I think everyone loves about you guys. You change to the seasons and talk about that. Like why that's so important and, and, and the idea of that you walk in and it's, you know, okay, it's summer's coming and oh wow, whole new offering here. And you've got some staples, but why is that important to you guys? And, and is that how much of the, if, I, if I'm looking, if we're looking to identify like the sweet green secret sauce and there's definitely a lot of secret sauce going, going on, like, change is definitely one of them and i think it's it's a few reasons
2: i mean it's truly a win-win-win for us change makes the food taste better because it allows us to create a seasonal menu and food that's grown in season just tastes better people talk a lot about seasonality in terms of sustainability which is great Mm -hmm. but it we do it to optimize for taste when you when you taste food that's grown locally and in season it just the flavor bursts in your mouth in a completely different way it's all it's like an emotional experience to people there's a lot of fatigue around food especially to food and products especially today in this like hype drop culture people want newness and a lot of newness and so we've constructed the brand around you know around change and newness whether it's a new collaboration or a new seasonal menu or or the fact that you can customize your bowl to your liking and your nutritional preferences. We want to make sure it's it's consistent in terms of the ethos and the trust Mm -hmm. of the food, but you can eat something different every
0: single day. Passion and purpose, two words that come to mind. I see everywhere. They're on the bags. they're, They're at your locations. Why those words? Why are they so important? Those words for us really highlight the part of
1: why we started the brand and why we created Sweetgreen was around, you know, back 10 years ago when you wanted to eat healthier, make some good decisions around what you were eating, it really had to be the sacrifice. You had to sacrifice on flavor or convenience. Um, and for us, this idea of creating an option where you didn't have to sacrifice anything, where you could get food that made you feel good, both physically and emotionally, with, with a brand that you could connect with, and that was really convenient, was this kind of intersection of the things you loved and the things you you know, you know should do. And it was this intersection of passion and purpose and having them be integrated into one experience. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's been this mantra that we've really built the company on and understanding um, as our purpose, how we can continue to scale this kind of food that doesn't exist. And it goes beyond the, the customer experience
2: and the product, but to ourselves. I think it was a reflection of our life of finding Something to do that you're you're passionate about, but also has a purpose. Not where your work is on one one place and your life is somewhere Mm -hmm. else, but integrating the two and doing something that you truly care about. And that's what we believe was what would create a fulfilling life. And you know, we feel like we're we're very fortunate that we get to do
0: something that we love so much. So, do you think it was almost a case of you know, to your point. Salad was this like healthy, bland, boring thing that, you know, I'll take the Cobb, I'll take the Caesar, I'll take whatever, and, and that was it. Or, or maybe the novel approach before you guys was like, oh wow, like I can mix and match, great, stale, boring, and you guys put purpose behind it, put a brand behind it, had a feeling around it, and that was what was missing in a, in, in a sense. And a focus on locals as I could go on and on. Sustainability, local, season. Yeah, seasons, the feeling, it, It's
2: all about the feeling. Yeah. And that's what a brand is. It's a relationship. It's, it's the, the product is just one iteration of it. But it's about the trust that we have with our customers and the, the inspiration not just for what you're eating but for your life. And that's where this idea of passion and purpose really comes in.
1: And I think that word John just mentioned, trust, is probably the most important part of our business. Everything we do from how we source to how we message it to how we build our restaurants to how our team members prepare the food every day all comes back to creating this incredible trust with our customers. So they come into Sweetgreen, and they know whether it's by reading the list of farms and where every ingredient comes from on the board to understanding, watching us make the dressing or strip the kale in front of them. All those things create trust in our product, our supply chain. And people just come in knowing they can make a decision at Sweet Green and they trust it's the right decision. There's a lot of thoughtfulness into everything we do. And
2: from the ex- product to the experience to the mobile experience, sure. every piece of it, there's nothing that really we do by accident. We kind of really th- we think about how it all comes together in this ecosystem. Even from a food standpoint, you know, one of the problems we're trying to solve is, is I think about the four stages of food. And stage one is how you feel before you eat it. You want to feel excited. Mm -hmm. Stage two is while you're eating it. You want to feel like it's delicious and satiating. That's Most companies think about those two stages. We try to think about how do you feel right after you eat it. Hopefully it's energized and not dead. (laughs) And then what very, very few food companies think about is how do you feel way after you eat it, 10 years after you eat it, 20 years after you eat it. How does that affect your life? And what we realized is there was a lot of food companies that were either solving for the, first two exa- for the first two stages or the last two. But no one was really thinking about how do you make food that you crave and is delicious and that you want to feel excited about, but you still feel good afterwards, right after, and then is good for your life I love much, that. much after.
0: So you guys also have an amazing festival. And so walk me through your, like, the idea, okay, like, we're expanding, riding new locations. You know what? We're going to do a huge event and get, like, huge rock stars to come. And, like, what? how did that idea come about? And what did your investors say? And you're like, we're going to do...
1: <laughs> you know, in hindsight, we could sit here and pretend like it was incredibly strategic and it was part of this master plan. But... When we did it, it just felt right. And part of what we wanted to do with Sweet Green was build a brand that could connect people to food through many different conversations. Yeah. And one of those we believed was music. Music is one of the most emotional things. You know, people have a very emotional relationship with their music and we wanted to create that same connection with food. And for us, this idea of a music experience was, you know, there's nothing more experiential than going to a concert or seeing live music. But those days also tend to be one of the least healthy days of the year. You know, when you look at <laughs> sure. what you usually eat at a concert, and so we wanted to kind of connect people to our food ethos through this really incredibly exciting day, which involved music. And it started really simply outside one of our restaurants, our second restaurant in DuPont Circle, when it opened, wasn't doing that well. And so we decided to pop a table up and our uh, other co-founder, Nate, who's a DJ <laughs> on the side, or used to be, uh, just started playing music outside, just to connect people to the brand, to bring them in, um, to create that connection. And little by little, it worked. And that turned into a block party behind the restaurant. Which then turned into a bigger block party and then finally converted to our first festival at Merriweather Post
0: Pavilion with 13,000 people. You've had like big musicians too. I think you had like Kendrick Lamar and like we, some big names. Yeah, we've had Kendrick Lamar twice. We've
1: had Kendrick Lamar twice. We've had yeah. The Weeknd. We've had uh, Phoenix, The Strokes, Lana Del Rey. Uh, who else am I missing?
0: said so The Weeknd, Calvin Harris, yeah. Avicii. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. And so in this journey to how many locations, 88, 86, 86. like, were there points and I want to get back to food, but I want to get, get to the journey in today. Like, were were there points where you're like, oh man, like this is tough. Were there certain years or moments where the the pains of like, everyone looks at that growth and everyone says like, sweet green's amazing. I love sweet green. These guys have, you know, have the, have the, they're living the sweet life, like the festival (laughs) and, you know, like, were there moments in that journey where you're like, oh man, Absolutely, yeah,
2: ab- absolutely. I think one of the big lessons f- for us has been around resilience, and you know businesses have ups and downs. And if you zoom in into any month, three month, one year period, it, it goes up and down a lot. But if you can just stick with it and then zoom out and look at a ten year period, it looks like it's it's a perfect trajectory. But any <laughs> specific period has a lot of lot of challenges, and we've had a number of them. And we still do. I mean, we're facing a lot today.
0: Is there anything that like stand out where you're like, oh man, I don't know how the fuck we got through that or, <laughs> or like that almost <laughs> too, killed you. Too me. many to count. And I think, you know, to John's point, those moments for us, as
1: painful as they are when you're going through them, end up being the most valuable. Yep. Cause out of the biggest challenges and, you know, crises come, I think the biggest lessons and ultimately the biggest successes. So for us, whether it's understanding how to go to a new market or how to build our team the right way or, you know, how to deal with a store that's not performing as well as it should. Um, you know, to, there's so many challenges we face. But it's in those moments that we end up actually figuring out some of the most
0: um, brilliant ideas we've had. So how do you like pick new markets? And because I know I'm sure a lot of people are listening and being like, Why are you gonna come to my neighborhood?
1: <laughs> yeah, for us it's you know, we're in eight states today, um all over the Northeast, Chicago and in California, both north and south. And for us, it's just trying to stay as closely connected to our customers possible to really understand who they are, what they want, and then to go to cities where we can really serve them the best. And so there's, you know, we want to be everywhere eventually and there's so many cities we could go to. So ultimately it's about, you know, understanding certain demographics and psychographics and, you know, looking at each market, um, and the community that they are and seeing where we should go next and, Ultimately, there's 20 places we'd want to go to right now. So it's just about ranking them. So if, it, if
0: it's the summer of 18 right now and people are listening, like, is there anything you could share about where to possibly show up in the fall of 18?
1: We're continuing to expand in our existing market. So a lot of growth in California, uh, in LA specifically. And we have some more coming in uh, Boston. And where else do we have coming this year? Somewhere in New York, and a little bit everywhere. Yeah. Nope. And then next year we'll we'll tackle
0: some new markets. No Florida or Texas yet, right? Not yet, but hopefully soon. You killed it, Miami and Austin. Yeah, Love those, Miami, and Austin. Those yeah. are yeah. in the top of the list. Yeah. You know, if we, you know, we really approach everything.
2: with this combination of art and science. So starting with the art, the creativity. What's the story we're trying to tell? Where is the customer? What's the experience? But balance it all with a lot of science you know sure. the analytics and the data science and really measuring and trying to predict how things are going to do and we apply that to our real estate and how we choose it what's the story we want to tell in terms of where we are says sure. a lot about who we are we do but then we balance it with the science of okay we we want to go to Austin that makes sense for our story but where do we go and how do we go mm-hmm. exactly that's going to be profitable we do the same for our menu there's there's a lot it starts with art it starts with True, you know, a creative vision of what do we want the, you know, how do we create the most delicious meal? But then a lot of science of, of, okay, so which flavor trees and which, combo, you know, would, a, would either bring, attract the most new customers, keep the mm-hmm. most existing customers. So it's, it's this, you know, really delicate
0: balance of the two. Well, I want to segue. You mentioned art and science. One, you have art in like every location. And so one thing I've been wondering in our Dumbo location, I really like, like, who's the artist you have in, in the, Dumbo, the Dumbo location? Do you know offhand?
1: Yeah, one of the things we're really proud of is our art program. And it's something we started in one restaurant about three, four years ago just to really create some localized uh connection and to really connect with folks in the community that were artists. And quite frankly, it started simply by connecting to artists that were eating at Sweetgreen. We'd meet them <laughs> in line; They were customers. We loved their work. They loved Sweetgreen. We wanted to just kind of celebrate that connection. And it's grown ever since. And so we really try to, you know, create these moments in each restaurant where we commission local artists that are part of the community or part of Sweetgreen community um, to create a really cool, you know, experience in the store. And so we've worked with some really great artists from, you know, Austin Wiener to, uh, Lola Rose Thompson. Uh, we have an incredible partner tap in collective. That is this gallery that finds up and coming local artists and they help connect us to artists if they're not in the sweet green community. So it's a really fun way for us to localize each restaurant.
0: And you mentioned the science part, you know, you guys have definitely innovated with regards to the experience. You're one of the first brands that I can think of that went with an app cashless, it's like things that were like, whoa, like, uh, you know, we're in Brooklyn too. Like half of Dumbo a couple of years ago was like all cash, like some of it is. And and how do you think about that when, it, you know, a lot of brands, like now, I feel like now everyone is cashless, but you definitely were one of the first brands to push the envelope with regards to an app and experience. And it, it, A, it's, there's there's ease. B, collect data, science, know your customer better. Like, how do you guys think about that? And where do you think things are, are going where...
2: Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. For us, it's how do we reduce the friction to, to enjoying this kind of food? And part of the, you know, the app came about where so many people want to eat at the same time. You know, we have our supply, <laughs> our supply and demand curves don't really line up. And so you have, you, have, you know, I have a every, feeling I know the times. Everybody, <laughs> yeah. everybody, you know, you have almost unlimited demand when you have very limited supply. So how can we design an experience a mobile, you know, both in terms of how you order and then the restaurant experience and how it's set up so we can serve the most people in that limited amount of time and that's what the app unlocked for us. And so we were very thoughtful about how we designed the app and then how we designed the restaurant to be able. To facilitate those sort of orders. So it's not just an app, but you have to almost design a mobile restaurant Mm -hmm. that can, that can uh, handle those orders. And so there's a lot of technology that's built in the kitchen. Um, There's a lot of technology that's uh, obviously built on the consumer side and using that to make it easier for customers to enjoy sweet green. And so today almost 50% of our orders are come, come through our mobile. And so what that does is it gives us a lot of great great data to be able to personalize the experience for our customers and it also allows us to serve more people in those short periods of
0: time. Something I also think about you guys is in many ways your platform and you're very conscious of that platform. And, and two things come to mind for me personally that we're, we're ingredient driven. One, no bacon. And then two, we're going with Steelhead. And just talk about those choices, big choices in terms of ingredients and caught my attention, And but you made a choice and you have to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, John alluded to this before, but for us, it really is when you look at our menu and what we decide to serve, it is this constant evolution and focus on what the customer wants, where they're going, where we want to lead them, what kind of conversation we want to play in. So as we really develop our food ethos into different categories, whether it's meat or seafood, really trying to take some bold statements and bold moves around what we think are the best decisions, and then for us just sharing that information and that story with our customers. So Steelhead is a great example. Um, it's our seafood option, Steelhead Trout, which is a very close relation to salmon, yeah. and it looks like salmon and it tastes like salmon. But for us, as we really dove into understanding seafood and how we can make the best decisions to offer a sustainable option, it was about introducing people to new species of fish and not just having – People eat the same four species of fish that are being over farmed and overfished. And um, at the end of the day, if we want to create more sustainable options, it's about broadening customer appeal to different seafood options so that was the story we wanted to tell and we found this incredible product that was sustainably farmed in uh the columbia river in the northwest we visited went to visit the farm and understood everything from the feed to the ratio to the i mean really going as deep as we can go and then we wanted to tell you know bring our customers on that journey with us and tell the story of why we think this is a great option and today it's one of our most popular uh, protein options
0: so what are the four that everyone goes for all the time?
1: I believe it's salmon, tuna, cod,
0: and uh, lobster. Not up there. No, not lobster. It's either really? bass or I forget. So I remember seeing steelhead. I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is wow. It tastes like salmon. It feels like like for me personally, I'm always like, hmm, I, I love salmon. And we used to serve salmon. Yeah. So I there know. was
2: there was a conscious decision to change and tell that story of you know we thought this was the best option, but. We've actually learned and we want to bring you along our own journey of learning more about.
0: Well, it's great. That's how I learned about it. And I, you know, and I I like to fancy myself as someone who knows what's going on. I knew that there's a a problem with sourcing salmon sustainability, but like, it's a big deal. Like you got like, I'm guessing that previously a lot of your customers wanted salmon every day. So it's a bold statement to say like, you know what guys, new, new choice. Actually, there's no new choice. It's no choice. It's here's the new option. And so also walk me through the decision, no bacon.
1: Yeah, you know, I think broader as we look at all these decisions from bacon to steelhead, a lot of it is us just our own evolution of understanding where our menu should go. So it isn't about saying this is the absolute right answer. This is what we believe wholeheartedly. Things are going to continue to change. So we had bacon on the menu for seven years of our existence. And as we really wanted to continue to evolve the menu away to different protein options, Bacon was just one of the things that was ordered the least on our menu, and really? it was taking up a lot of room, one of the hot holding um, zones. Yeah. And for us, we wanted to innovate around, away from it, not necessarily because we don't think bacon is good. You know, I eat bacon, I think it's delicious, um, and a lot of our customers do, but it was more about um, just continuing to evolve the menu and create more options.
0: So what are you guys most excited about in terms of ingredients that – you know, you you do have the ability if you want to with 86 locations, you can put an ingredient on the map. A lot of people, I don't know how many thousands of people walk through a sweet green every day. I don't even.
1: Tens and tens of thousands. <laughs> so it's a lot.
0: So if all of a sudden, like you show up a new form of a leafy green that was non-existent, people are going to take notice. Like do you guys, how do you guys think about that? And what's interesting to you? Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that's really part of what excites us so much, to see this trust we have from our customer and the relationship we've built allows us to tell stories around new ingredients. So whether it's broccoli leaf as a base for our salad or, you know, we just had parsnips and sunchokes on our menu, which is not something you would normally see on a fast food or fast casual okay. menu. Uh, it was one of our me- best-selling salads ever. Wow. These miso-roasted uh, root vegetables, with so parsnips, turnips, and sunchokes. And so that was an opportunity for us to... Um, serve our customers something that we found in our supply chain that our farmers were growing in that season that they wanted to sell us that was, you know, they were growing for a certain reason. It was great for their soil. It was that time of year, easy to harvest. And so instead of telling the farmer what to grow, we let the farmer tell us what
0: to serve. That's pretty cool. Like regenerative agriculture is like a whole other conversation right now, which sustainability, talk to me about that and what that, I know that's something that's important to you guys.
1: Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, we have, you know, a food ethos that is rooted very much in how we source and what we believe. And so much of that belief in how we buy, who we buy from, from the farmers comes back to their relationship with the soil. And so, you know, for us, it's not necessarily about being 100% certified organic Mm -hmm. or 100% local. Those are things that... You know, for us, if we're truly making the best and most sustainable decision comes back to soil health and the farmers we work with the closest and the ones we try to buy from are the ones that have a certain relationship with the farm, with the soil of regenerating certain nutrients and really understanding how to continue to not just grow vegetables, but grow soil.
0: Yep. Couldn't agree more. Huge topic. Now to me, what's so exciting about regenerative agriculture is it's definitely on the map. Some big companies like Applegate, General Mills, like putting a stake, stake in the ground on it. If you think about sustainability and climate change, I don't know if you guys read Drawdown, Paul Hawken, amazing like Mm-mm. amazing, uh, amazing book. He has a hundred solutions to climate change. He ranks them from one to a hundred, assigns a cost and impact. And I want to say like four out of the top 10 are related to food. Mm-hmm. So like plant-based diet, refrigeration, food waste, another big one, which I know is important to you guys, which I want to talk about. And then regenerative ag. Regenerative ag—it's it's better food, healthier soil, and actually can help reverse climate change. It's like win-win for for everybody.
1: Yeah, part of our belief in our supply chain is that we want to create a system at scale, be the kind of restaurant and buyer that can change the way food is actually grown in this country. So today we're relatively small compared to that, you know, some of the larger scale players out there. But as we scale, it's not just about how much we buy; it's also about the the message and the. um you know, really the message it sends out there to the rest of the food community of this is what's important. This is what our farmers should be growing. And not only working with farmers that are doing things the right way for the soil, but also starting to work with very different kinds of farmers, younger farmers, new farmers, understanding that today the average age of our farmers is 65. Oh, man. Uh, and so they're aging. And so how we can continue to inspire and support the next generation of farmers is something we spend a lot of time talking about as well.
2: And there's a big push towards transparency and an expectation of transparency that I think is going to change the industry. When we start to tell you where our food comes from, you're going to start asking, well, where does the food come from somewhere else? Mm. And what that's going to do is it's going to force people to really think about where they're sourcing their food because customers are going to expect to know.
1: Yeah, and I think to John's point, it becomes the way we can have the biggest effect is by changing the narrative out there and creating more demand for this food. That goes beyond our four walls. So a great example is I think General Mills just announced a few months ago they were starting to invest in converting land to organic wheat, Mm -hmm. right? Because the demand for their organic products are so high that they've realized that in four years they're going to run out of enough organic farmland to grow the stuff to keep up with demand in this country. So that's where that's an exciting example where demand is changing the supply.
0: Right. So where is the future of food? Like, where do you think this conversation is going to be in a couple of years?
1: Oh, man, great question. Uh, we do a whole podcast just on that. Question. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be a continued uh, focus on transparency and not just about where things are coming from, but, you know, things like regenerative agriculture and focus on the soil and how that leads to the footprint. I think we'll continue to be a deep uh, conversation. I think people's, um, palate will broaden. So as we talked about what we've tried to do with, um, steelhead, I think people's, uh, you know, the range of what they eat will broaden, whether it's, you know, incorporating things like kelp and seaweed and things that are very sustainable, um, and have a much smaller footprint will start to become more mainstream. And I think that chefs and brands like Sweetgreen have a big opportunity to create, make those things mainstream.
0: You've done a great job partnering with like pretty well-known chefs. It's another like element of surprise.
1: The collaborations for us have been a great way to tell our story around food, and so whether it's you know a salad based on food waste with Dan Barber from Blue mm-hmm. Hill, or a really fun salad we, we did with Kendrick Lamar, um, uh, incorporating Beats, beets. Yes. <laughs> what was the
0: name of that one? Beets don't kill my. Don't vibe. Beets don't kill my vibe. The T-shirt. It was all like a whole campaign. It was brilliant. Yeah.
1: It was. But those collaborations for us are a really fun way to create these moments that tell stories around food. Whether it's something as serious as food waste. Or, you know, we did a salad with David Chang around fermented ingredients mm-hmm. where we used this fermented chickpea hozon. Um, it's a great way for us to explore, be inspired, test new things, but also just talk to our customers about food in a different way.
0: Are there specific ingredients that you're like, oh, this could be interesting in a year or two? Long long list. <laughs> C- can you give us some? I mean, today, you know, things like seaweed and
1: kelp yeah. and things that I think are incredibly sustainable we're spending a lot of time on, you know, we've always been fascinated with anything that's fermented, I think, from a nutrition point of view, from a sustainability point of view. Um, And then, you know, just always continuing to talk about things like food waste, Mm -hmm. you know, is something we went really deep on two years ago with our collaboration with Dan Barber. But when the collaboration ended, the conversation didn't end for us. It's something that we're constantly looking at in our food system, how we can continue to reduce waste and just be more efficient with our SKUs and what we buy and what we serve.
0: Can you just educate people like how, but like food waste is pretty bad. And like, how do you guys think about it? And just maybe just give people some insight into how big of a problem it actually is, especially in in your industry, the restaurant industry, fast cat, like it's tough. Food waste
1: is a very interesting and scary topic to look at when you really start to read some of the stats. Aside from, I believe, you know, 35 to 40% of food that's produced in this country is wasted. It's not just about what happens in your kitchen once you've bought the food. It's really understanding how your consumption, what you buy ultimately trickles up the supply chain. So whether, you know, it's how things are grown or produced or what size they're packed in or, you know, what demand for certain ingredients is versus others. You know, a good example I'll give you is when we decided to put broccoli leaf on our menu a couple of years ago, and when, this was in the Dan Barber salad. We decided to buy it because we were in the field at our broccoli farmers, um, in California and, You know, as we talked about the broccoli leaves that we were standing on, he said, I just till those back into the ground because there's no demand for them. Customers don't buy them. Yet it's this green that is just as nutritionally dense, if not more than kale, incredibly delicious. But no one was buying them, so they didn't sell them. So thinking about, you know, that as we started to buy them was an incredible ingredient we got to talk to our customers about. And it also created another revenue stream for the farmer. Mm -hmm. And so so much of what we grow and how to be more efficient with food is about consumer demand and taste and how we decide what to buy.
0: So wellness has come so far and food in a lot of ways. And, so, you know, 10 years you've been around, we've been around about about the same amount of time. I, I look back, I'm like, oh my God, who would have thought that Amazon would have acquired Whole Foods Market? Like that's the world we live in. Exciting, scary, what have you. Like, what do you think wellness, you know, with all the growth, like what what do you think we're getting so right uh, you know, and then, on the flip side, what do you think we we still don't get right? What are we getting wrong? What do we need to change?
2: I think wellness is getting is becoming more accessible, and just like healthy eating it's it's not way out here and so so difficult or expensive. Wellness is being brought whether you don't have the time for it, you can now meditate on on an app while you're on the subway. you can do you know yoga whether you can make it to a yoga class or not you can. You can also do it at home via something like Yoga Glow. Foods also moving in the same way where it used to be so difficult to be healthy. You had to go to the farmers market and make your food yourself. Now you have some, somewhere like Sweetgreen where you can just order it and pretty soon it'll be delivered to your home. So it's how to again how do we meet customers where they are? And as I think that the millennials have really asked for this. They've been you know wellness has been important to them and they believe in investing in themselves and in their own health and how that makes them happier. And so I I see that continuing, but I think it has to, it has to continue to meet customers where they are and be be easy for people to
0: enjoy and experience. What do you think is a trend? And then what do you think is a fad right now? It's fine line.
1: Mm I mean, you're asking within the wellness world. Yeah. Good question. Who knows these days? I'll say
2: mindfulness is a trend. Okay. I think in the crazy world we live in today, I mean, it's just, I I feel like we need that Mm -hmm. to center ourselves in some way, given all of the stimulation we now have. There used, used to have some form of meditation built in naturally. Yep. You know, whether it was... A pl- you know, a walk to work, a plane ride, something where the you quiet write, yeah, time yeah, some waiting some
0: online at Sweet found it without qu- an app, some without quiet a phone. Time, but
2: that, that's all been taken away. So you have, you have people have to find some sort of mindfulness, and I so I see that as being a trend, and not a fad. But I do think it'll come in so many different ways, not sure. just meditation. It'll be you know people will find their own, their own mindfulness, whether that's your yoga, your surf, your walk. Just mm-hmm. some something to center and ground yourself.
1: The only fat I can think of it would be this, you know, extreme meal replacement, like Soylent type <laughs> meal that is kind of the opposite yeah. of real food. Yep. You know, I think that I agree. Became That's a good very one. popular and exciting for, you know, a certain community and conversation. But I think ultimately, um, as we talk about the longer term effect, like how you're connecting to your body and health, there's nothing that can replace real food.
0: Agreed. It's just crap. And I also think to your point, there's like a little bit of a backlash. Well, not maybe a back. I still, I still think it's trending, but, but specifically with men and this idea of like hacking your way to, to wellness with regards to food. And I think men maybe gravitate a little bit more toward that, but I think it's, um, women don't and, Personally, I don't either. I think this idea of like too much information is a little, it's like we're at the intersection of access to, you know, DNA, microbiome, this and that. Like yeah. what is it a little we like? Think that, we think, we think that, much.
2: I, I do believe that's going to be a trend. Personalized, oh, absolutely. personalized Huge. nutrition, Huge. both from a nutrition and from a taste standpoint. Like people have very particular, like Netflix knows more about your viewing taste than most food, you know, than you know about what you like to eat. And so we believe that is going to be a trend, both from, you know, how your DNA and your microbiome affect sure. what food is good for you, but also what is your taste profile? What sure. do you, what are you
0: going to like? Totally agreed. But I would add in this process, you know, of hacking, of, of personalization, of not losing sight. One of my, you have a great image in one of your locations of like, you guys are breaking bread on a rooftop. It's mm-hmm. like Brooklyn Grange or whatever. It's exactly it, that. Brooklyn it, Grange and it's rooftop. like this idea of like, you, that's still, part of wellness. Yes. Getting together friends, gluten. <laughs> gluten can happen sometimes. Good that's gluten right. and and breaking bread and having conversation and having fun. It can be a little dangerous I think when it becomes a little too rigid. And I think that's like an interesting
2: absolutely agree. Food yeah. food is what I love about food is it's you need it to survive. There's like it's like the lowest part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You need mm-hmm. it to live. But it's also the highest. It's that breaking bread, that emotional. It's emotional, like bread specifically is. (laughs) The gluten is very emotional. That's very (laughs) emotional, and we shouldn't lose that. Food should not just be food to survive. Mm -hmm. If food is fuel, and we, you know, at certain points you need to treat your body like a machine and treat it like fuel. But it's also. Eating is a social and emotional experience. There's nothing better than that. It's a, it's how you explore new cities and new new places. It's how you connect with people, and we shouldn't lose that. It shouldn't just be like, all right, take this pill and you're good for the day. Sure.
0: So where's Sweet Green going to be in like three to three years? You know, as you think about the experience, you know, is it going to be completely different or is it going to evolve? Are you thinking? You know, we're going to have a fine dining. We're going to have another option. We're going to have a truck. We're going to do all this. Like, I know you guys are creative and, like, what's the future look like?
1: Yeah. So, for us, the future is, I think, this even deeper commitment to evolution. You know, I think if you, we've talked about over the 10 years, so much has changed at green. <laughs> and going forward, I think that pace is going to even uh, increase. So, looking at testing new formats, new things in our menu, deeper ways to engage with our customer, Um, these are all things we're working on now. And, you know, I think the world around us is changing so quickly that Mm -hmm. for us to continue to lead, we have to move even quicker.
0: Would you ever do fine dining? That's what that's your, that's your family. So (laughs) would you ever, would you ever
1: do that experience? You know, we consciously never rule anything out, but in the near future, probably not.
0: Cause if I think about like how food consumption and restaurant like has changed a lot of people like dining out, like to me, fine dining is just like completely different. I remember in the nineties, like going to, you know, restaurant like Le Cirque and Oh yeah, and the good old days. I grew up with Moro macioni and I went to college together. Um but like that whole experience and that was like the place to go and then like just the, the whole environment changed. Um so it would be interesting to like rethink like what does fine dining look like? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think one you know, as we talk about where Street Green is going to go, there's obviously this push towards ultimate convenience and removing friction but at the same time we're big believers in balancing that with a really thoughtful uh, experiential element Mm -hmm. so understanding that as our food becomes more convenient and frictionless and easier to get that as we build our restaurants and our physical spaces they need to become even more compelling even more experiential a place to john's point where people can come and meet and sit and make that decision to come to a place and sit versus, you know, I'm just going to like sit on my couch and order here, which is fine sometimes. But I think in a world that is becoming hyper digital and hyper convenient, people want and crave this hyper experiential part of it as well.
2: So anything's possible. They balance each other. Yeah. For us, it's how do we go beyond the bowl and really think about our food ethos and how else that can show up in your life and really getting to know the customer, our customers and what else do you want to eat? And then what are the other formats? So today it's, it's really just one, it's in store, whether you come pick Mm -hmm. up or order on your phone, but pretty soon it's delivery. Pretty soon there's, you know, other places where you can experience the food. And then to Nick's point, how do you then make the restaurant even more experiential a a place, a platform for learning and education around the things that we're, the the things that we're serving. So if you're going to go, if you're going to get off your couch and you're not going to order for delivery, there has to be a reason. Yeah. There so has be to, you you got to feel something and have some sort of community element and learn something while you're there. And so we're kind of pushing into these two extremes of hyper convenient and hyper experiential.
0: So is there any type of experience or location where you guys were like, we'll never do that? Like. No. No. Like a cruise ship or something. <laughs> like, It's
2: the, o- honestly, some <laughs> of those places where you'd think we never would are the places that we're most excited about. Places like airports. And cruise ships or Airports trucks, makes a lot of sense. truck stops. Yep. Right? Like That'd the places cool. where it's it's you're it's solving such a problem. We're really excited about some of those places.
0: So what is the biggest problem you think we face today in terms of access and food and and the fast and the experience? I think there's a
2: disparity in terms of people really understanding I, I think some people understand the the cost of real food mm-hmm. but i think generally ac- across america there's there's a lack of understanding of the true cost of real food and i think part of our our mission is to is to educate people on why food you know how food is grown why it's grown that way and why it's good for you and so that that's i think the, sure. the larger mission it's going to take us a while to get there
1: yeah, and I think to, to John's point, the part that goes with that is ultimately today, if you look at the way our food system is built, it's built very much by, you know, large food companies that make a lot of money selling processed food. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, and that all happened for a reason, whether it's 50 years ago after the war, we had to make food a certain way in this country, but understanding how we evolve away from that to really build a system that supports growing food in this country the right way, supporting our soil, and ultimately getting that food everywhere in this country. Uh, is exciting for us. And you're starting to see the shift, but that Mm -hmm. is going to be a long, long road. And, you know, we feel fortunate to be part of that journey and being a brand that can start to push that change.
0: So who inspires you guys? Where do you go to for inspiration?
2: Inspired by a lot of brands outside of our industry. So, and and for different reasons. So recently been very inspired by Nike and this ecosystem Mm -hmm. that they've built. You know, Mm -hmm. if you think about all the different channels and how they feed each other whether it's their mobile mobile platform to this weekend, they just, you know, they had their their uh, runs all across the world. And they're still, you know, bringing people together from a community perspective, but also meeting them where they are in a digital perspective. So the, that's a brand that I've been, been watching closely recently.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we're constantly uh, inspired by a brand like Patagonia mm-hmm. to see how they constantly evolve and change and grow. But have a very clear message and take a stand aside from having a great product with incredible supply chain. It's one of the brands we look up to the most.
0: And how do you guys, you know, you guys have raised capital. How do you manage managing that raising capital institutions, returns, which are obviously important and and mission, and staying true to the brand.
2: We actually believe they're not at odds. We really do believe that, that you can be good for business and good for the world. And they they truly go hand in hand. It, it takes a lot of discipline and creativity in making that, in telling that story, and building and having your capital aligned to your strategy. And it, it you know it does take long term decision making mm-hmm. and having a much longer term strategy. Some of the things we are doing are not going to pay off next quarter, but if we have pay, uh, investors that believe in the long term future of what we're trying to build. We do believe that doing something that, you know, this idea of conscious capitalism, doing Mm -hmm. something that is good for the world, is also good for business. And there's businesses that have proven that, and we want to be one of those.
0: Totally agreed. You need alignment with you. You got alignment with the right investors.
2: You need alignment all the way through. The right investors, the right people on your team, and and your customers will root for you.
0: Yeah. So you guys, you guys work a lot. You travel a lot. This brand is very personal. There's a mission how do you find balance? What does that look like for you guys? Or is it a myth?
1: It is definitely not a myth. And there's points where it's harder than (laughs) others. But in general, we are, you know, part of what's really driven us this past 10 years is a belief in balance in actual time spent and even creating the space daily. And, you know, in larger stretches of time to give your, your mind some rest. Um, but for us, ultimately it's, we wake up every day very excited to do what we do. And we feel fortunate that we get to be a brand that's trying to build this thing no one's ever really built. And we get a lot of things wrong. We get a lot of things right. But ultimately, every single day, we're energized by it. Right. So we kind of achieve balance every day by being, you know, at work. What yeah, about when you're stressed? Call it, like
0: you're a meditator. You meditate, right, Nick? Like, <laughs> we do. Like, we what all, do you do? What do meditate. you do? You all meditate. So is meditation like when you're stressed? Because everyone, you know, is, is meditation. What's your go to?
2: Yeah, it's the. It's a practice. So whether it's meditation, for me, it's yoga, yoga and surfing. Those things feed my soul. Like I I need those things a few times a week just to to spark that creativity and to balance and ground, ground myself. And I I think we're all when we when we take care of ourselves, we're much better at taking care of our business. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes you think you can just put more and more hours in and get more done. But it doesn't really work that way. And we've learned that sometimes the hard way where you've tried to just work till exhaustion, but the work ends up not being great. And so we've realized one, you know, one, you got to take care of yourself first. And then two, it's this idea of integration of work and life. I think Mm -hmm. we're very fortunate that we do something we love. We do it with people we love. You know, that's, it's very cool to get to go to work with like your friends and do something you love to do. And so it doesn't really feel like work. We get to get up every day and like we're doing, you know, whether it's the art, the food, the design, the music, like we get to bring all of our passions, these passion points in our own life and in our customer's life and bring them to life every day. So it's very, it's very energizing.
0: I love that. We use the term work-life integration. Colleen and I, my wife, we work with, we're like, we fail at work-life balance. It's work-life integration. It's integration. Yeah. And so you mentioned what's exciting to you guys in the morning and gets you energized. Like what, what keeps you up at night, if anything, what, whatever, like, you know, one of our, one of our missions is creating
2: intimacy at scale and creating a business that gets mm-hmm. better as it gets bigger. And there's a lot of businesses who, that have done that, but most food businesses have not. As they get bigger, they get worse. The product suffers 10 years in our products gotten much better as we've gotten bigger I think we're constantly thinking about that. How do we use our, as our scale to our advantage and not become that place, you know, that as they got bigger lost their way, lost their soul, lost the, you know, cut mm-hmm. corners. And I think we really are like maniacal about that, about ma- making sure we, with, with every, you know, every step we take in terms of size, we actually invest in the, in the product and experience and get better.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, to John's point, when you look at these companies that started out, really great and scaled and lost their way, it wasn't like one big drop. It was like an inch a day they gave. You know, they sure. gave up an inch a day. And for us we try to think of it backwards. Where where can we gain an inch a day? Where can we just get a little better every single day? Um so ultimately ten years later or twenty years later, the product, the experience, the relationship with the customer is that much stronger.
0: I agree. It's the same thing. I, I fear, and I think every mission-driven entrepreneur fears. It's you know losing the sense of mission, the brand, the purpose along the way. And I agree. It's a, it's a it, little bit. I don't think it's one day one big thing. It's 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 this idea of these little slips. It's like a relationship too. Most relationships don't just like it's not one thing. It's like there's a slow erosion, and then you wake up one day. It's like what the fuck happened? and yeah, that, that's
2: it drops in the bucket. Yeah, and it, it starts with the company culture. Mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, as you, as you scale, you know, it used to be just three of us. Sure. And then it was 10 of us in a room and now, you know, we have over 3000 team members and there's 150 of us in the treehouse, which is our, which is our support team. And so it's starting to get to the point where we can't control everything. We can't touch everything. We have to empower and trust and use our mission, our values and, you know, our, the way we communicate internally and lead people. To, to get there, it can't be this controlling sure. way to do it. And so there's this
1: letting go. Yeah, what, this that's, trust it's in hard. What's go. the
0: biggest learning there? I think that's hard for. It's hard.
1: I believe the biggest lesson there has just been about the importance of hiring the right people. You know, we believe a certain thing and we want to build a certain kind of company. And to John's point, we can't do it ourselves. And we need to empower and find people that believe the same thing. So it's very important that everyone that works at sweet green truly believes in the mission and is aligned there. And when someone is not, you quickly see it.
0: Mm-hmm. So what, if you start with mission, so assuming like there's a, you know, competency level, start with mission. Like what's next? Like what are the qualities of people who really succeed and thrive? at sweet For green?
2: us humble. Yep. I mean, egos don't work where it's, it's a team sport. What we do, um, we look for pa- really passionate people that actually like believe and love what we're doing. Um, we're hardworking. We, we're competitive. We're competitive as hell. We want to win. Sure. And so it's, it's not, it's not this work-life balance job. It's a, it's, it's a missionary job. And so there's that competitiveness and hardworking. Uh, there's a curiosity mm-hmm. that is really important for us in terms of, you know, lifelong learning, wanting to learn, you know, we believe the learning's never done. So we look for people who are really curious and, we do look for this, you know, coachability. You know, we do, we look for people who are like, who are great, but won't, you know, have that curiosity and are willing and open to feedback that want to continue to get better.
0: Very similar to what we believe here. <laughs> Very, eerily similar in a good way. Uh, so last question for you guys, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you were those, uh, eager yet naive 20-somethings for starting sweet queen What advice would that be?
1: <laughs> Great question. You know, it sounds simple, but I would probably say, uh, you know, we're at our best when we trust our gut and then look at the data and science to kind of back it up. But generally, when we're this close to it and we believe in something so strongly, generally, your gut is right. So there's been moments in the past where we kind of felt something, but Either, you know, a number on the paper or someone that was an expert told us differently and we didn't believe it. And sometimes they're right. But more often than not, if you trust your gut, you're right.
2: I think, you know, I heard someone say this recently and he's like, he was was speaking on a podcast and he said, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I just would have taken out some of my attachment towards the things that happened. And in this idea of like wanting to control everything. And I think if I could go back and even like looking forward, things are going to happen and there's going to be great times and hard times. And if you can just have a little, you know, witness it and have a bit of detachment Mm -hmm. while still being fully engaged, I I think you can prevent your emotions from getting the best of you. I love it. Nick, John, thanks so
0: much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for for having having us. us.